Well, good morning. It is an honor to be here, and um, we've had a great weekend together so far. Uh, as Pastor mentioned, uh, my name is Peter Beals, and my wife Sarah is here. Uh, we are privileged to have four of the five greatest children on earth with us as well today. Uh, that would be Emily, Matthew, Holly, and Hope. Uh, you know, the fifth one, the one that's not here, is Rebecca. She's our oldest, and she's in college at this time. Um, but uh, thankful that we could all be here and participate with you in our, uh, in our worship together this morning and in, our, in this weekend. If you have your Bibles, turn, if you would, to the book of John, chapter 5. And we won't get there for a moment or two, but if you just have that ready. I want to first begin by just having us think a little bit about the Bible, that if you have one with you, uh, or if you see one near you, just think about it for a moment that we're holding. Um, this book, in the history of the world, uh, has been the message from God. That's what people have called it. That's what it is. And a lot of times in our modern day, we think and hear that it is maybe something for simple-minded folk, maybe for those who don't quite understand the technicalities of the new universal world that we live in, uh, maybe for those who don't understand or appreciate science that need a crutch of some kind to, to rely on. And yet, while I love America, uh, I'll call your attention to the fact that the Bible is not an American book. The Bible is not even a modern book, and it's not even a book that was produced from the West. The Bible is originally from the Middle East, um, and it goes way back. It wasn't from the time of the British Empire, uh, though, though the West was greatly influenced by it, and Victorian England and all of its uh, image had a connection to much of Bible teaching, the Bible didn't originate with the British Empire. Uh, the Bible was completed sometimes, sometime around the Roman, during the Roman Empire. And portions of the Bible go way back from before all of that, before the Greeks and before the uh, various other empires that had risen and fallen. This word that people claimed was from God was already around. It is as old as the pyramids of Egypt, much of it. And what we're going to look at a little bit later this morning is, in fact, that. And empires have risen and fallen, and people have lived and died in the years during which these words, translated into modern English and leather-bound in, in paper form, and you can get it, I'm sure many of us are reading it on on a Kindle or some other electronic device. But these words, these thoughts, these truths have been around for humanity's history. And they have been claimed by some to be the very words of a real God. And so as we look at them this morning, let's keep that in mind and recognize that this is, there are those who scoff but this is something that is quite well time-tested. And with each archaeological discovery of ancient texts, 
the proof has only, has only continued to support that the words that we read in plain English today really are what it said a thousand years ago and beyond, 2,000 years ago and before. And I would just call that to your attention this morning because there is a tendency for us, maybe those, maybe you're new here or, or, or you're not sure what you think of what you know, Christianity stands for and what the Bible teaches. There is a strong voice in the world around us that says, this is something you know, else other than what I just described. And I just call your attention first to that as we look, I think, with some level of fear on what God has said and preserved for us to read this morning. When I was a kid, uh, there were certain threats in the world around us that I perceived to be big threats. Um, I understand someone was stung by a bee yesterday out at the, uh, the wood pile there that was the bonfire. Um, I remember hearing of killer bees back in the 1970s when I was a kid, and I was sure that these killer bees were out to get me, and you know, I saw a bee here and there and was pretty sure that was probably you know, the beginning of a big swarm of, of killer bees, right? Um, Bigfoot was another thing that we heard about back in uh, those days. I guess he's made a resurgence recently. And um, I don't know why, but that, that connected with me as a child, and I was, I was fearful of a lot of, uh, a lot of that stuff. Then the tidal waves, uh, nuclear war certainly, during the Cold War era especially. These days we hear of things like an asteroid that's probably going to demolish us, or the Maya calendar, which ends at the end of this year and, and all of humanity may change because of it. We hear of the bird flu, uh, mad cow disease, the swine flu, um, and global warming. And I know these are not uplifting uh, topics, but um, we, are, we hear all the time of great threats that are above us and, and upon us. And I think sometimes we hear so much about it, it sells the newspapers and the magazines and the online news resources. We hear so much about that sort of thing that sometimes we become a little bit used to the pattern. We hear a threat, you know, we, we, we take it for what it's worth. Some of those things I just listed are real things, some of them are not. Um, and, and we're used to that in our mind. But back to what we just started with, the message of scripture is telling us of a very big threat, which we'll get to in a moment. And this has been consistent and time-tested throughout human, human's history, human history. In John chapter 5, where I had you turn, Jesus has begun to speak in this passage with some Pharisees of the day, who were, at this point, early in the book of John, already opposing uh, what he had to say. In fact, early in that chapter or the late chapter 4, you begin to see that they were plotting to kill him. They didn't like what this man was saying. They didn't like the popularity that uh, was following him. And they were unhappy about this. And in the flesh, in their pride, we've been talking a little bit about that this weekend, they were unhappy about this situation. And they wanted to, this caught their direct attention. They wanted to do something about it. And in the course of chapter 5, Jesus lays out quite a bit about who he is. And he, he lays out also toward the end of it about what the scriptures are. He says at the end of that chapter, these are they which testify of me. He tells these, these people that are opposing him, if you knew, I'm putting this in my own words, but you look at chapter 5 at the end at some point today and think about this. Jesus is basically saying at the end, if you knew what the scriptures, and in, in his day he would be referring to the Old Testament, 
If you knew what they taught, then you would know me. If you knew the God behind the Bible, then you would know me because I'm with you right now. And that's quite a condemnation, really, that he's delivering on them because these were people that knew the scriptures technically. They knew the ins and the outs and the yeses and nos and the ups and downs, and they knew how to keep the law by a checklist form. And they were experts in content, but they didn't know the God of the Bible. And that's, that's his condemnation to them. But in the process, he says an interesting thing. Look at verse 26 of that passage. He is here making the case that God the Father in heaven has given the Son, has empowered the Son, God the Son on earth here, life in himself. He says, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now we're not going to discuss and look at so much this morning the technicalities of that statement altogether. But I want us to just ponder the beginning of that verse where he says, as the Father hath life in himself. The Father, of course, he's referring to God the Father. And that phrase that the Father hath life in himself is indicating something to us about God himself being the source. God himself being self-sufficient. You and I are used to a certain pattern of living. We are used to the way the world works. We are used to life and death. And, and to sustain life, there are things that are needed like air and food and water and sleep. And A.W. Tozer, writing about this passage, said, it is safe to say that every created thing needs some other created thing, but all things need God. Jesus here is saying, the Father hath life in himself. The scriptures, book we were talking about, these reveal to us much, all we can know, about God. He starts in the beginning of the Bible with Genesis. He doesn't take up the evolution-creation debate. He simply starts with, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. From the very beginning of scripture, we are told God was there. And throughout scripture, all the way to the end, we, we end with Jesus saying, surely I come quickly. And everything in between is the, the revelation of God, ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The scriptures tell us about this God, and yet they depict him in a way, especially in the Old Testament, in a way that I'm afraid we have forgotten too often today. God needs no support. God does not need us. He does not need help. He is the source of all things. He needs no, no companionship, no help, and no helpers. Again, A.W. Tozer writing on this in, the, in his book, uh, the knowledge of the holy said this we're all human beings i alluded to this yesterday in the afternoon message but listen to this quotation we're all human beings suddenly to become blind the sun would still shine by day and the stars by night for these owe nothing to the millions who benefit from their light so or like that were every man on earth to become atheist it could not affect god in any way 
He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. Almighty God, just because he is almighty, needs no support. Too often today, Tozer goes on to explain, we have this picture in our heads, a picture born of our own sinful, sin nature thoughts uh, 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 that, are, that are impressed with ourselves, our pride, full of pride. This picture that there's this God in heaven who created us, and yet he's kind of wringing his hands up there and, and fawning over men, hoping that we turn to him and that he somehow needs our companionship. Now, there is a lot, there's elements of truth, clearly in some of that, in that there is, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His love for us is is a theme we're not emphasizing this morning, but absolutely it is the core of what he did and what we just celebrated as we sang and and worshiped together in the communion and commemoration of what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. This was because the love of God was shed forth for us. He gave himself for us. And yet he didn't do that because he lacked something in himself. He didn't, it isn't that you or I was, were something he needed. He rather offers man who rejected him the opportunity to be still in fellowship with him. So the Bible does talk about this great God, this almighty God. And it also reveals to us, and has been doing so over the millennia, the problem of sin. I talked a little bit about those threats that we're familiar with, the, the, the threatening thoughts of things that, uh, that threaten us here and there. Um, I'm sure many of us remember, probably all of us remember 9-11. And when that took place, that rose to a slightly different level. At least I remember thinking it myself. There is such a thing as an existential threat, something that threatens the very existence of something else. Uh, When 9-11, on the day of 9-11, when the Twin Towers fell, and then we heard word that the Pentagon had been under attack, and nobody knew what else was going on. There was a lot of speculation, and certainly our worst fears did come to pass on that day. But it, it, it dawned on me, anyway, for the first time, that America wasn't guaranteed a tomorrow. America, like any other country, can fall. That's that's something that threatens the very existence of something else, known as an existential threat. The scriptures tell us that there has been a spiritual battle going on. And, And don't get the impression when we hear of a spiritual battle that the throne of God is somehow under siege. That's not the case. God is who he is, and all of his created beings include not only us, physical man that we can see, but also the spirit world. And yet God, in, in, in ways and in reasons we don't understand, has seen fit to allow the spirit world a certain amount of freedom, much like he has allowed mankind a certain amount of freedom to make choices. And this spiritual battle has been going on, battle between spirits, between the forces that would support God and the forces that would oppose him. And this spiritual battle, the scriptures reveals to us, has been going on since before the creation of man. And we are latecomers into this battle. 
when man is uh, put on the earth, Adam and Eve are told by God uh, they've been given one rule. And the temptation that comes to them from the devil is that which basically says, you can become like gods. He is inviting them to join the battle that he's already engaged in. And they fall for it. And as a result, that's what we refer to as the fall of man. Adam and Eve's children, their offspring, which includes every one of us, are cursed forever. And in addition to the fact that we are the children of Adam and Eve and we are part of that curse, we choose to do this all the time ourselves. Let me read a quotation about what sin is. A man by the name of John Champion in 1910, a pastor in America wrote this, this uh, an American pastor in the South wrote this about sin. He said, sin is preeminently a wrong to God. It is one long, incessant attempt to dethrone deity. It turns the heart into a dark chamber of treacherous plotting against the government of God. It is the ceaseless attempt to undermine the, the dominance of the divine. One sin is incipient war with God and all good, a league with the devil and all evil, a potential hell replacing heaven. It is the crucifixion of the good, the slaying of the Son of God nature, the murder of life divine. Sin never rests until it has crowned innocence with thorns and made its spear thrust into the heart of perfect righteousness. He said, let me read that last part again. Sin never rests until it has crowned innocence with thorns and made its spear thrust into the heart of perfect righteousness. We are under the condemnation of God. If there is a real threat, and there is, it is, and there are other threats, but the primary threat to humanity, to the very existence of man, is that of sin. Now, we're not, we don't have the time this morning, and I don't have the desire to break this into specific sins. We did a little bit of that yesterday. But for each of us, for every one of us, there are things in our life that we know are wrong. There are practices, attitudes, habits that we just take for granted as part of being a person. Sometimes we excuse them as who we are. Sometimes we just have a generally light view of God and we think that this is, this is okay. And yet this is very much against what we see in the scriptures. And I just ask you to think for a moment about maybe one sinful habit that you have or one sinful attitude that keeps, keeps emerging with you. And as you think about that, think with me for a moment about Adam and Eve. When, when we look at it as people, the sin that they committed was they disobeyed a command not to eat a piece of fruit. As humans, this doesn't sound like a big deal. There was a man in the Old Testament named Achan who stole, a, a, actually he didn't even steal, a, we wouldn't necessarily call it stealing. He was, they were commanded by God, this group of the Israelites at one point to burn a bunch of things and he saw something that was very good and he, he stuck it aside. God dealt with him and his family in a very severe way through, the, through uh, the people of Israel at that time. Because God saw this sin, you and I would look at it as not a big deal, but God saw this as a very big deal. We have, as modern people, come to the place, I think, 
where we have this light-hearted view of God and a heavy-duty emphasis on ourselves. Please turn, if you would, to the book of Psalms and the 50th Psalm. I'm going to read um, this psalm, for the most part, to us here this morning. This was written by Asaph. He was a contemporary of David. So this was in the glory days of the kingdom of Israel, when things were pretty good. To this day, that time period is looked back in, in, in Jewish history as the, the crown jewel of Jewish, Jewish history, David's kingdom. He says this, and, and in this psalm, this would have been read uh, at least with the Feast of Tabernacles, and it, or, or sang, it was a song, and we don't know exactly where else. But he begins with this. He says, the mighty God, uh, I'm sorry, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. The whole earth is being summonsed. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice, he says, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is the judge. A commentator by the name of William MacDonald wrote about this, that the setting here is a courtroom with God as the judge. But, he says, we should not think of this courtroom scene as some obscure trial that took place long ago in Israel's history. It is instead God's continuing evaluation of his saints throughout the world. And God goes on in the next several verses, 7 through 15, to make a first charge. And basically, he is talking here about people that will bring him sacrifices but whose heart is not in it. They go through the ritualistic motions of religious worship, and yet their heart is far from him. Their heart is somewhere else. He says at the end of it in verse 14, sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. You know, to my shame, I had that verse underlined in my Bible for many years. Call upon me in the, in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee. I have in my wallet a uh, AAA card. Uh, that's exactly what that is. That's something I keep in my wallet. I pay once a year, and if there's a trouble, I'll call that number. I also have in my wallet uh, a card for my health insurance, which hopefully I don't ever have to use. But if I do, it's there. And to my shame, often I looked at that verse sort of like that. That God was just offering, hey, if you need help, give me a call. That is, not, that is very much out of the context of what God is talking about in the psalm. Very much a flippant view of who God really is and what my standing is before him and what he expects of me. But continue reading in verse 16. To the wicked, he then turns and says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant within your lips? You hate my instruction. You cast my words behind you. 
in verse 18, he basically says that you blend in with evil ones. When you see a thief, you join in with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. Verse 19, you use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. Then God says this. He says, these things have you done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. I realize this is not an uplifting message here at all. But there is a time for, for serious look at a very serious topic. God is telling us here that we think he is altogether like us. We get away with, in his grace, he defers sometimes his judgment. He defers his punishment even on us. He gives us a chance, the goodness of the Lord should lead us to repentance, Paul told the church in Rome. God's goodness, God's long-suffering, his putting up with our foolish thinking is something we must not interpret as some sort of endorsement that everything's okay, don't worry about it. That's how we interpret it because we are so inflated in our own minds that we are all important and everything's gonna be okay very different message here. He says, I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. We started with the reading here in Exodus chapter 34. You can, if you have your Bible, still turn back there as well. Exodus 34. In this passage, Moses is going up the second time to get the Ten Commandments again. And notice how God describes himself. God first tells him, I want you to come up. We read this responsively. I want you to come up to the mountain again. And God is going to go over some more things with Moses. And this time, Moses is going to get a glimpse of who God really is. And yet we're told no man can see God and live. And Moses is not given a real full view of God. In fact, when Moses comes down from the mountain at various points, his face from having been with God shines so brightly, physically, that it literally had to be veiled. They had to put something over his face because the people couldn't look upon it. This is simply a reflection of the glory of God that Moses saw. And that was physical response. Moses is told by God, come up to this mountain and I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments again. But notice he says, don't bring anyone else with you and don't even let the animals stand around the foot of the mountain. We see an amazing description here of God himself and what takes place even in the physical world with the appearance of God. But notice in verses 6 through 8, of uh, Exodus 34, God, when he is appearing to Moses, describes himself. He calls himself the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousand and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, 
he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So we see two possible treatments by God. Incredible description of forgiveness for those who are guilty, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is extremely forgiving. He offers to us his forgiveness, but he requires that we become like a child, that we recognize that we are not what life is all about. He requires that we humble ourselves before him. And notice Moses' response. Moses made haste to bow down to the, Lord, the earth, low to the earth, and worship. Pastor spoke just a few moments ago about what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus because of God's love for us, God sent his only begotten son into this world to take our punishment for us. We deserve punishment because of our sin. Jesus has offered us complete salvation, complete payment for the sin which we uh, are to be punished for. And God is offering us today like he described himself to Moses on the mountain, forgiveness and compassion or guilt that will not go unpunished. That's true. It's been the message of God to humanity over the millennia. We have a moment in time. We're a small people sitting in a little place. I'm not describing the church as a little place or Methuen as a little place, but in the real grand scheme of the universe, we are but a speck on a speck on a speck. God in his love, like the sun that shines out and is not affected by those that are seeing or blind, God has shed his light, his light out on us. His grace is there as an offer for us. It is up to us Will we humble ourselves and turn to God? Will we accept what his word has been saying all these years as truth? Or will we go on in our lives puffed up and ultimately pay the punishment of the guilty? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace that you offer. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a, a, an accurate view of who you are and who we are. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us people who don't just pass time on this earth and then face your judgment, but people who are humble, people who are ready to be uh, trusting of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.